Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes edgy secrets of B2B software creation. On today's episode, we have Dan O'Connell, CSO and CRO at Dialpad, and Keith Messick, SVP of Marketing at LaunchDarkly. Thank you, Dan and Keith, for joining. Uh, this is the Category Creator Podcast. Uh, my name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata. I have these two gentlemen with me, um, Dialpath and Launch Darkly. Um, Dan, maybe you can get us started and introduce yourself um, to the crowd. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Gil, thank, it's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And then uh, I'm our Chief Revenue Officer here at Dialpad and then also a member of the board. Uh, Dialpad acquired the business that I was managing and building uh, coming up on three years. Uh, so it's a startup called Talk IQ. It's a speech recognition and LP startup. And then prior to being the CEO of that business, uh, I had spent about a decade at Google building out sales organizations and teams. I joined Google and it was you know, a couple hundred people left when it was 60,000 people later. So a little bit of a crazy experience to go through. And then uh, went with my boss to build uh, another ad tech company called AdRoll, which is now known as NextRoll. So it's great to be here. Very cool. Very familiar with AdRoll. Great company. Uh, Keith. Yeah. Hi, I'm Keith Messick. I run marketing here at LaunchDarkly. I've been here a little over a year. Um, for the past decade plus, I've run startup or run marketing at many different companies of all stages, one of which was Dialpad, where I worked with Dan. And it was such a terrible experience that I had to leave because working with Dan <laughs> is absolute hell. Very difficult. Very difficult. <laughs> so uh, he's going to ruin this podcast any moment now. I cannot wait. It looks like this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so this is great. Uh, I know Meredith, by the way. She was a few cohorts before me in uh, Alchemist Accelerator. So I got the chance to know her. And then she's fucking awesome. She's uh, ruthless. So that's cool for you to work for, for, uh, for that kind of CEO. Gentlemen, it's nice to meet and have you on this podcast. This is the first time I'm using a proper glass for the drink usually it's a cup and everyone gives me shit for it so don't worry about oh it. i gotta pour i gotta i have my i gotta pour mine definitely so, take a minute yes. do oh, that good for, uh, i didn't, I didn't like, even reply to that email i just have a lacroix no oh okay lacroix right. but there, there's no alcohol in lacroix so that's, that's not gonna right. work I apologize. If I get drunk, I'll be mean to Dan and it'll fall apart. <laughs> well, well, I think we can handle it. You sure you don't want to grab a, a glass of wine or a whiskey no, or I'm, something of your choice? I'm good. I appreciate it. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, let's get started. Usually we talk about category creators and category creation, but also about just general other topics that are interesting. Uh, let's start there. Uh, both Launch Darkly and Dialpad are, are very unique companies. Um, Keith, maybe we can start with you. What do you think about category creation? Um, many founders are being pulled to do category creation because right. VCs tell them that that's the best way to get to a billion dollars. And some think it's a good idea, some think it's a shitty idea, but anyway, they do it and try to, or at least try to do it. What's, uh, what's your opinion about it? Well, you know, if VCs say it, it must be right, right? It must be right like 10% of the time, whatever the average is. But, but when it's right, it's really right, maybe 40%. So I think that category creation is great when you have a category to create. Um, I think it is um, really distracting when you don't. And, I, and I've seen it both ways. Um, 
and I think B2B category creation is, is actually its own animal. You know, a lot of times when people talk about category creation, they talk about Uber and I'm like, well, I mean, okay, well, there's one of those, but like that may or may not apply to your insert, you know, MarTech, business communications, DevOps company, whatever it is, right? But when you have the opportunity, the genuine opportunity, um, it's really valuable. I think where most people do it wrong, and I've participated in this once, is where you just try and create a category for category's sake, but like the people aren't really asking for it. It's just, you're just trying to sell the same product that someone else is, and you're just trying to call it a different thing. And that's what I think it's a really, it's just a huge distraction. Um, but when you have an opportunity to focus on the people in your audience and give them something unique, I'm, I will stand with the VCs on that one. Okay, one out of 10, the VC is right. And when they are right, you should create a category. I'll ask you more about uh, what signals that tell you that you should or should not. Uh, Dan, what's your opinion about category creation? Yeah, I would generally, uh, Keith and I usually don't agree a lot, but I agree with him on this. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting on, on category <laughs> creation is a lot of it gets into marketing speak. Is, is pers and, and I think especially when you see businesses that get that see their opportunities to, cre to create a category, you then suddenly see, I would say, startups battle over the branding of that category. I think conversational intelligence um, whether you call that coaching, however you want to frame that voice and tell whatever it might be, you see all of these startups suddenly kind of fed into um, how do they brand it and see it. And I actually think that becomes distracting and difficult for the market to actually understand what is the problem that people are solving. Like everyone gets so caught up in the uh, owning kind of the, the, the marketing term and marketing speak behind it that um, similar to what Keith said, I think it becomes distracting, but I also think it gets really hard for the market to actually understand. But um, I do agree that there are moments in time where uh, there are new technologies that allow you to truly create uh, new products that people haven't seen before. And I think if you can be the, the dominant player uh, because much like many of these markets, you know, you're going to a few markets are winner take all. You typically see kind of two to three companies kind of float to the top on it. If you can be one of those companies, I think there's extreme value creation um, created for everybody, whether it's the people building the startup to the investors to whoever it might be. First of all, cheers for both of you agreeing on, on one subject. That's great. That's a good start, right? So cheers. Thank you. Happy Friday. You both agree that sometimes it's a good idea, sometimes it's a terrible one, very distracting, it's confusing for customers, for the market. Joe Chernoff told me two, three weeks ago, look, if you are, I have a binary question, you know, Joe Chernoff from, uh, from uh, Pendo. I was like, look, um, I asked myself this question, it's a binary question. Am I taking a new line item in the budget or is it an existing one? What for you are, you know, are the questions or the ways that you know whether you're going to tell to your CMO or CEO or yourself, yeah, I'm going to go and fight this battle because we are completely unique and innovative and define a new category or not. We're just the better version of something that is already in existence. Yeah. Well, I think some, some of it comes down to like features, so I, you know, to talk a little bit about, um, you know, just to give an example of Dialpad. So we do voice, uh, like we're a, a communications and collaboration platform um, is our core. Now, our approach and narrative is very much leaning into how do we help people understand what's happening in these conversations. So to us, like when we think about category creation, it's very much like, look, we play in this massive TAM. And we know that that TAM has a lot of legacy businesses. And so the narrative and the differentiation, the problem that we're solving 
becomes really important. Meaning, hey, instead of me going to Gil and saying, hey, we can provide you with a better way to make phone calls or have video meetings across any device, once if I can help you understand what's happening within those conversations so you can make better business decisions. So I fall less in like that's a different category. There's There are different problems that we solve. And then it gets into kind of the marketing and the speak and the differentiation that you want to lean into in terms of how you sell this to your customers. I agree. I think it's a really thoughtful, uh, uh, you know, what you, what you just mentioned around you know, is do you have to go and get a new line item created for this or a new budget created for this? And the challenge with that is nobody ever knows. And this gets into the category creation is there's a bunch of educate, like creating a category sounds great until you literally have to then go convince somebody that they should spend money on it and then also spend time educating them on what it is. Um, and what I learned kind of managing a startup was, hey, if I can go play in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an industry that has a massive TAM and then differentiate and tell a different story and truly have something that's different, I would much rather fight that battle than necessarily than necessarily get into the I want to create a whole new realm and I got to think about how to go to market on it. I got to think about educating it. I got to go convince people that there's a new budget. Um, I think that can also be fairly challenging. Keith, yeah, I'm Dan and I are going to agree twice. Um, <laughs> so I mean, a, a couple of things. I, I'll talk about Dialpad for a second. I'll cross over. You know, Dialpad has the best product in a legacy market with a huge TAM. Like Dialpad doesn't need a category. Like, I mean, that they that category is worth $50 billion and they have the best product and the product gets better every release. I mean, that's a, that's a really winning position. Um, when I think about categories, I think about, I really, the first thing is always motivation. I understand if the, if the motivations, I want to just make money, I mean, that's the motivation has to align with the customer or the audience's motivation. You know, it's why HubSpot worked because HubSpot's motivation aligned with um, marketers and, and the whole shift to inbound marketing. I think it's why Marketo had a lot of success. Same thing, like mar marketers were trying to get a seat at the table and Marketo was, you know, building something to try and get them a seat at the table. So the, so it lined up. I think that's really the question, you know, when, when I was at Success Factors years ago, Success Factors, uh, just after the IPO pre-exit, we had, we sold software to, to um, HR software, performance management to start goals, recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. And we had decided, not we, but it was decided that we were going to change to um, business execution software. We called it BizX. It was a uh, a horrible name, but it was going to be the new category. And here's the deal. No, no one in HR wanted that. Like they didn't want it to be business execution software and no one CEO, COO cared. Cause when you just went to them, there's like, cool, this seems like HR software. Why are you not talking to my chief people officer? Right. There was completely like two ships passing in the night. Company wants to create a category audience doesn't care. So the motivations have to line up in order for it to work. With with LaunchDarkly, um, we're the feature management space. We created that category, and it's because we have a unique product that um, software teams want, and no one knew where to stick it. Right? It just didn't really fall 
under pure DevOps. It didn't really fall under CICD. It felt like something else in between. And, you know, our motivations aligned with our audience's motivations. And that's how we got here. But I think that's the biggest question because whenever your CEO comes to you and says, we need to create a category, you should be really, really skeptical and work your way backwards. Very interesting. It's, fa it's fascinating because uh, I was just talking to Chris from Sendoso. And he was mentioning, well, two things. Uh, first, he was mentioning how they were going after category creation from day one, which I thought was fascinating because I had no fucking clue how to create a startup in, in Silicon Valley. And I definitely yeah. did not know about category creation. I didn't want to do that at all. Uh, I, I'm more of a product person. I was a marketer. I'm an engineer. That's where it came from. But my VP of marketing, he thought this is completely new. I've done this for like 15 years. This is completely new category. We have to do this. And I was like, no, this sounds like a really tough thing to do. He's like, I think we're going to do it anyway. I think it's a really good idea. And he was right. And we're, you know, we're trying to do it, which is why I'm trying to learn from you how, how, to, do, how to execute it. But the customers, both of you agree that customers telling you to do it and customers agreeing and being aligned with you, uh, you are calling it motivation, but essentially being aligned. Like uh, I think Nick Meta was talking about creating uh, a, place in the, uh, you know, a place on the table for customer success. They were like a third-class citizen before, and Gainsight yep. made it legit, like customer success. Yeah. So you're saying this is kind of for you the biggest, the biggest factor uh, for both of you. Like uh, there, is, there is a customer who thinking about the problem in a different way and you're aligned and you created that, that unique value proposition that was not there before. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to ask yourself, like, could we create like raving fans? Like, do people care that? I mean, I think Gainsight's a good example. I think Zendesk way back in the day is a great example. Like customer so support software sucked. Everyone, every, every party hated it. If you were in customer support, you thought, you thought I've made terrible choices and I'm yeah. using terrible software. And if you're having to deal with customer support, something's going wrong. And so it's just a transaction where every single person is miserable. Right. And Zendesk came in and said, they built something that was, like sort of a beautiful experience and they celebrated people in customer support. And suddenly in the 2009, 2010 space, being in support was actually pretty cool. And it was because they, they had motivation, right? Both, both parties had motivation. I want to make customer support cool and I'm in customer support. It would be really great if it didn't suck so bad and you line those things up and I think good things happen. And I think Gainsight had a very similar experience. Dan, are you in agreement? Uh, I, yes, is. I am. Sorry, I'm, I'm going silent on this stuff because I think we're we're in agreement on it. On uh, I'm shocked, just, I am flabbergasted. <laughs> All right, I'm going to change gears for a second because I feel like you you worked together before, so I want to talk about something else for a moment there. Uh, where where did you work together? And I want to hear. Usually, I ask um, my guests to talk about their hashtag fail moment for themselves, but since you both worked with each other and you love each other so much. Uh, would you be able or, or willing to tell about the other person's hashtag fail moment when you were working together and loving it so much? <laughs> oh, man. That's a good question. I don't, this is like on the spot, too. I literally. Dan uh, and I are both perfect. So it's really hard. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm honestly trying to think of like, uh, um, like a failed moment. I'll do a failed moment that combines, like, there's probably like the two, like the two of us. Uh, Cause I think it gets into a little <laughs> bit of like category creation, but 
you know, like I was overseeing revenue and, and Keith was overseeing marketing and, and, and one, like hopefully people pick up kind of the rapport between me and Keith. Like I, I think Keith's awesome. I would love to work with him again. Um, so we had a hashtag uh, work from anywhere. Um, and that hashtag we had prior to, to both uh, me and Keith joining Dialpad. Yeah. Um, we did not lean in hard enough. So this is like a failed moment of like owning, uh, I would say like owning a category or owning some marketing around this. Fast forward a year and a half later, we now are, have been obviously challenged going through a pandemic. And now everyone talks about work from anywhere. Yep. And I'm like, I think it was a massive kind of missed opportunity for all of us to see kill the desk phone we had as a hashtag and then this work from anywhere we were the first ones to brand it and now I just see it everywhere and it irks me to be like oh we could have been the brand um, that really could have captured that moment and that's not on the marketing people and it's on, you know as I said it's it's not one person's mistake or failure on that stuff um, and I really think there are failures in life. There's just things that you learn from. And uh, that's one of like, hey, if you had this good idea, sometimes you got to stick with it a little bit longer. Sometimes you got to scream it from that from from that from the rooftops and lean into it. And I think that was just a moment that we missed. But as I said, like, in, you know, was there like a crisis moment that we failed on or Keith, you know, suffered through it? Honestly, like, I'd like uh, there's not one that like comes to mind. I, I should have predicted the pandemic if I would have. <laughs> I really, I missed Where that were one. you on that? You know? I know. No, I think that, um, I'd, you know, I think, I, I think my answer would be probably like, it's actually related to what Dan said is, um, it's just inconsistent. Like, I think like we had a habit of like a little bit of a shiny object problems at times. And when, when we would find something um, and we were like, oh, this thing is, this is a thing. We were half the team was already looking for the next thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then by the time half the team caught up with that half of the team, the other half of the team had already started looking at the next thing. And so it was, um, it was, yeah, never enough, I think, just holding on tight to something. Yeah. And which and is, think, and it takes a lot of discipline. Yeah. And going back to Gil to like where, where, you know, like the initial part of the conversation around category creation, I do think what helped, like if you, if you have that moment in time and you can solve that problem, what I think the best companies do is they're solving that one, they understand specifically the problem and the opportunity that's there. And I think what becomes a little bit challenging for other businesses, especially as they scale, is they start to get distracted on what actually is their, they get almost pulled out of their category. And so you suddenly see these, these startups because they have pressure of scale perhaps the initial category that they're building in is going to it's going to tap out on on the tam the total addressable market and so they have to figure out how to innovate and drive differentiation and so they start actually leaking in to other places um and i think you know we we at times like that has been much like any business that gets to scale like that's been a little but at times one of those challenges for us it's like hey what's the core problem the core category that that is true to our dna Distraction, shiny objects, very important. Can you tell me a little bit about competition, category creation and competition? How do you, how do you deal with that? So maybe you're doing something great. It is very unique. And suddenly there are others using similar words and talking about other things. Maybe they have the same exact features or less. What do you do with that? How do you handle competition in the path to category creation? Again, being running a company for the first time, um, you, you uh, th th 
you learn a lot of things. There's definitely things I would have done differently. And uh, for context, so I had joined Talk IQ as the the second CEO. Uh, I took us through our Series A round, and we were very much like pre-revenue. At that moment in time, I think the the opportunities there was a massive opportunity to to own the the conversational intelligence space. And I would say, Gong and Chorus were two of our direct competitors. We had all raised similar Series A's. Uh, all of us were pretty much pre-revenue very early on in where we were. So it was kind of a three-horse race at the time. Where I think we went wrong um, was actually not leaning into building a strong advisor network. And I think both Chorus and Gong, I think Gong does this exceptionally well of how do we go and partner with other sales leaders as a way to go and drive product adoption within kind of the organizations that you aspire to, to have as customers. And I also think they went really, really big in terms of their branding and marketing. They are kind of the loudest voice in the room on some of that stuff. And when you become the loudest voice in the room and almost especially early stage, you almost suck the oxygen out of places, which I think can be really helpful, right? You tend to get the, some, you, you tend to be able to raise large rounds that gives you more ability to go own the market, right? You suddenly can go and uh, you can buy a market, right? You're able to afford discounting and those things, but you can go and look bigger than perhaps you are. You can show up at Dreamforce with the biggest booth. And I always tell people as the startup is like, don't show up at Dreamforce with the smallest house next to your competitor that's got a biggest big a big hair house. That's just not it's it's not a good look, yep. and nobody will. If you don't show up, nobody will notice that you're not there. They will notice you if you show up and have the smallest house. 100%. Um, I look back to those moments of category creation, and I think there are some tremendous things that people can do around leveraging networks and advisors and leaning into that and creating ways to drive organic adoption within aspirational customers. Um, and then also just leaning in hard to marketing. And I think it's a balance when you deal with your board, because your board at that moment in time is, hey, you're early on revenue. They want you to be really mindful of, of, uh, of burn, especially if you don't have a lot of revenue coming in, but you also need to find ways to generate and, and build momentum uh, and to, 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 to kind of take shots at the, at the competitors that are there. You said so much right there. Uh, I wrote a few things. <laughs> he's, he's long-winded. It's bad. No, it's badass. You you said a few things that were you know I was I was hoping you you'll get into. So thank you. That was very uh, very insightful. Keith, what do you have to to add to that, if at all? I mean, he said so much. But yeah, no I pressure. Mean, no, pressure no pressure, Keith. <laughs> Keith, the, the easy answer is just to say you agree. <laughs> I agree. I don't think I remember the question because Dan talked for so long. I want to just get back to Dan's um his trade show thing. I that is. I could not agree more of like, you can lie in the digital world. You cannot lie in the physical world. The person with the biggest, uh, you know, account, checking account shows up at Dreamforce. And if you're in one of those little spaces, it looks pretty sad. I mean, you know, you can Photoshop your Tinder photo, but eventually <laughs> you're going to have to show up on the date. So totally agree with that. I mean, I think competition, honestly, I mean, everyone says this, but you know, no competition, no market. Your goal in the perfect scenario is to lead a category, clearly lead the category, and then get a bunch of competitors who are willing to spend marketing dollars, which basically triple and quadruple your awareness because for every dollar you're spending, they're spending dollars as well. 
and you just plan on winning on every short list still anyway. I mean, that's the that's the dream. Competition can actually increase your efficiency because they're they're driving awareness to your category. And if they don't, then it's all on you. But your preference is to be way out in front when that starts so that you're not really uh, in a huge fight. Yeah. And I, I actually think that's, you know, Gong's a really good example of that. I think Gong did great things. Gong, um, I thought they invested in brand early. They just used data yeah. as an asset and they used it with an audience that cares. Like sales is a great audience for this. And it was all like, here's the five words that we, we analyzed a million calls and here's the five words that'll help you close more deals, stuff like that. And I thought the product marketing there was excellent. And you know, who didn't want that? And I, people would start sharing yeah. it. And then, um, you know, salespeople were like, you know, using Gong was a little bit of a badge of honor, I think. Um, so they did a really good job. And then I actually think that competition just helped. They just made them bigger. That is interesting. So competition is actually can keep you, you know, keep you honest, keep you effective. They do the marketing for you. But actually, you both agree that, you know, if you can be the loudest speaker and set up the narrative early on and invest in it, you know, then you get more yep. funding then you can do more of it. It really is interesting because, it, again, it reminds me of Chris. He just said, you know, I invested in branding awareness and got a great creation from day one he didn't necessarily knew what it's going to look like but he did a trial and error and invested the money in it we're yeah. also the, the the go to market people though and i think like that's also a balance and a challenge and um you know when you have technical founders at times that believe truly in in uh product driven growth which is hey if we just buy if we just build the best product yeah uh, people should naturally want to use it um, and I think that can be a challenge early on. I see, I see you laughing and smiling, Gil, so hopefully that resonates to some extent. Uh, but I think that yeah, can be a does. challenge, right? Which is, is you, you go into an early stage startup and, and, and you're like, hey, uh, the, we need help to get, to get the, we have to invest in go-to-market motions, uh, which is getting salespeople and investing in marketing and brand. And um, that can be its own debates and argument, depending on, as I said, the makeup of that early stage team uh, of just where they come from in terms of their perspectives. And those are real dynamics that show up in, in the startup world and in seed stage businesses. It resonates on million levels, right? I am exactly the technical uh, founder. I'm product driven. It's never the case that the best product wins. I mean, not not the best, not never the case, but it's not the reason. I maybe in consumer yeah. world or maybe in some other places, but I definitely recognize that. Uh, and so it's very interesting to hear the go-to-market lead is what makes the go-to-market, right? That's what makes your ARR triple and the the NRR and people putting a synonymous with whatever you, the category name you're trying to do with in in the customer's mind, whatever it is. So it's fascinating to hear it. I'm trying to, first of all, I should get myself another, uh, <laughs> I, have to, I have to get myself another glass of this, but really, uh, I'm trying to learn, like, what is that stage? Like, at, at what point do you go all in? Like, once you have product market fit, let's assume you have a product market fit. You know that you created something that is superior, better product. It's different than, than the others. There is some proxy, right? Uh, I think uh, I had Amitabh from Workspot. He, he said, like, there is a proxy to your category. It's better because otherwise the analysts are just like thinking you're a weird animal. It's going to take you a while. Yeah. Like I had Diana from uh, Hootsuite and uh, Yammer. There was nothing similar. So she had to kind of get her an army of customers telling the analysts this is completely different, but you should still cover it. But many yeah. times it's not completely different. At what stage do you say I've proven enough, both from a product perspective, customer traction, product market fit in general, 
I even have some go-to-market fit, repeatable process that I'm comfortable with. At what stage do you say, let's move away from the technical founder, I need to survive, to the, I'm going to go all in and make bets that might be dangerous, but if we're not mistaken, then we're going to be the number one leader in that category. Teach me like what is that moment so I can recognize it and then make that bet. Oh, good question. I, think, um, I feel like that moment's just as soon as humanly possible. It's yeah, I would it's really hard to say like that. I mean I think I think product market fit is a is a probably a pretty good, you know, indication because if you're trying to if I think if you're trying to brand build and build a category pre product market fit, you're it's gonna be really difficult because you're constantly going to be trying to sort of iterate your way to something that For people sure. actually want and the next dollar is easier than the previous one you know there's no like uh you know fairy that flies into the room and says you've achieved like there's a sound you know and, ding, and you've hit product market fit so i know it's not that like you don't just know it right away but it's close as possible i think is when you start investing in brand and or category um I think that especially in B2B, it's gotten much better, but you know, it wasn't that long ago when people just didn't think brand mattered in B2B. Um, and it's sort of absurd now. I think most people acknowledge that. But um, I think the earlier you do it, the more you build a company around it, which I think is helpful. To add on to Keith, I don't think there's a moment in time. I mean, you can look at benchmarks and you can look at, at kind of expectations around uh, around growth to say like, when should you really, you know, if you're in the top quartile of businesses at similar stages, like all of that is is pretty open to go and see. My general take is like, look, like building a startup, working in startups is all a risk. I think one of the biggest risks is actually not swinging the bat. Um, and I think people can get, um, nervous around that and again it's taken me what 20 years in a career to suddenly realize like i'm in this because i want to take swings i don't want to get called out on strikes um and so that means that you got to have enough capital to go up against goliaths if you're you know some of our biggest competitors are google and microsoft and ring central and zoom um so if we're like hey we're trying to we're trying to be really practical on spend i can tell you how this would i can yeah you're shaking your head i can That's tell right. you how the end game of that works out. It's not rocket science. Uh, and so then you've got to care about, you know, the narrative and you got to have enough funds to go and fight differently and do things and take a swing at it. Because I'm like, I can tell you what it's going to be like if we don't lean into the momentum we have and spend and try to raise capital and all of those things. I'm like, it's they'll, the Goliaths will bleed you out. Um, and I think the same happens in category creation that you know, there's no moment in time. Generally, I think you, you'll feel it and see it. And I know that sounds fairly generic, but when you start seeing consistent wins and brands and people like to pay attention to the size of brands, potentially, those are the moments where I'm like, hey, if you can go raise as much money that makes sense, and then you got to think about dilution and all of that stuff and valuation and valuation is a blessing and curse, uh, depending on kind of what you want to go and achieve. Um, then I'm very much in like, hey, you're in this trying to make swings, go and take a swing because I can tell you, you'll probably look back at the end of your life and say like, oh, did I take that swing or did I play it conservative? You know, it's taken a bunch of years to go and <laughs> actually have the, yep. you know, to go through things that we didn't go and do and wish like, oh, darn it, I wish we had done that and so forth and you regret it. And so then it becomes like, and I say this to Craig, our CEO now all the time, which is like, let's go take swings. We're here to go take swings because we think we got a great story and a great product. Like, let's go for it. 
I think Craig is very lucky to have that conversation with you because I think that is exactly, look, there is, the, there is reality and there is the future, right? And, it's, and a founder has to constantly live in both. And if you're, if you're not living in the founder, there is nothing to work on. There is no revenue. There is no funding. There is no product. You might as well go home. Right? It's like there is no yeah. future. But if you also only live in the present, then what are you living for? There is no, there, the biggest promise is, is what you're going to do in two years. And so I can really resonate with that. Uh, and that's exactly, it's, it's amazing because it really is that, you know, I was just having this uh, all hands with my team and I was telling them, and I was the first one to be all about survival. Look, we have to survive. You know, we have to, we have to figure out our unit economics. We have to do the product market fit, the NRR, the growth has to be there. Uh, and then we, then we achieved it. It's like, awesome. We don't have to survive. Like we're surviving. We're good. Yeah. Now it's about thriving. Now it's above thriving. Now it's about being the first. I think that step is tough, especially if you are accustomed to adversity and scarcity and you have to really remove yourself from that mindset and jump into the next, which is I'm going to start making bets. So what does it look like in terms of execution? So you were having this conversation. You raised enough to make... Uh, the first to take the first bat. It's not the 30, 40 million on a 40X, but you have enough to, whatever it is, what does it look like? What kind of uh, risk would you take the first one in your priority? Uh, I mean, our biggest risk then get into your betting on your go-to-market motions, which gets into just even added sales capacity. You know, we added uh, for just, you know, I'll give you some numbers. Like we added 147 people in my org last year alone. And we did that through a pandemic on onboarding. And trust me, like we had, we had raised a hundred million dollar round, but that's why I take a deep breath now. Cause I'm like, we're going to go do that again this year. But those, those are the, those are the moments where you're like, okay, I'm now betting on uh, myself, I'm betting on our execution. I'm betting on our operational cadence, and most importantly, I'm betting on really the frontline managers. And I and I say this a lot with uh, to, to different people that I think that the frontline managers in an organization are really the lifeblood in an organization. I don't think they're given nearly as much credit uh, for everything that they do because all of the onboarding and training typically falls to them. It's not falling to you know I'm, I'm far enough removed that I'm you know. I'm given the orders and the strategy, but like the the day to day is there. Uh, but those bets, like at least for me, really come down to: Do we have the right talent? Do we have the right motions to go and fill those butts in seats to help hit the capacity model? Because I can tell you, if we don't get the hiring model and we don't hit the ramp model, it all goes sideways. And I can tell you what happens when it goes sideways: we miss numbers, and then you lose people, and and then that creates its own slippery moment in terms of you know the culture goes sideways and you deal with attrition and all of that so the bet starts with you know what do we think what do, what do we think is the opportunity and then get into we've got to build a model that makes sense and then gut checking the model to make sure that we're not being um too aggressive you know we want to be aggressive but we're not in ludicrous mode because i've i've seen some people with ludicrous mode and then it comes down to like, hey, do we have the right pieces in place to actually do this at scale and do it effectively? So I think there's there's kind of like a number of, of moving pieces that get into that. And I think there can be pressure on models, right, to begin with, which is, um, you know, if you are trying to raise a lot of money, there's always this growth expectation you're getting to. But at the end of the day, you've got to hit those numbers. And like the best, the best companies, especially on, obviously in public markets, are the ones that are setting reasonable expectations and then consistently beating them. I think at times um, founders can feel 
that they need to come up with a model just to hit a number in order to raise a certain amount of money. And then they get into trying to actually execute on that number and it's not reasonable. Um, there's no way that they can get to it. So I think you got to have some sanity of, of, of leadership in there that can go and gut check that stuff. Totally. And you were talking about evaluation being a, a double-edged sword. I think that, I don't know if that's the word you use, but you know, like you have, you, you get this 40X or especially these days, right? You get like 30, 40X, 50, sometimes yeah. even more. And then you have to graduate to that valuation. Like, good luck. You have a gun to your head and, well, in a particular period of time. Please. Yeah, no, sorry to, sorry to interject. Keith, I'll let you talk at some point. Don't worry. Please, I'm going to take um, a nap. It's fine. Well, <laughs> the like, valuation is a blessing. Of course, like, it's great for marketing, right? It's great to go and say, hey, here's our valuation. But you also have to make sure that you're in a TAM that's big enough to support it. And what I mean by that is some, sometimes you can be so, you know, you, you've raised such a high valuation that your only path to surviving is going public um, and then being a good public company. Um, and so I, th I think at times, you know, there are great businesses that are, that can get to a hundred million or can get to 50 million. And the TAM is simply not big enough to support the growth expectation. And then their valuation is so high, you're like, okay, what, wh like, where do you go? you're too expensive to necessarily get acquired. Perhaps you go the PE route, like, and those are real things that come into it too. So when I'm speaking about valuation, it's you gotta understand your game plan of, of what's your exit strategy and then is your TAM big enough to go and, and get you where you wanna be. It's fascinating. You, I, I'm, I'm in real time, I'm, I'm thinking about my company. I can't, I can't avoid it. And uh, I think I got it wrong because when I think about valuation and the 30, 40 X multiples, I'm thinking, the moment you do that, let's say you, you got the 40x multiples on your ARR, what have you, now you have to graduate there. You're saying that's not a problem. You'll get there. That's the bet you have to make. That is exactly taking the bet. But it is ahead of time, you should calculate the TAM, the, the, the immediate total addressable market, the ARR you could make. If it's 50 or 100, there is a limit there. But if it's a billion ARR you can make, don't think about it twice. If you think you have the best product, if you think the market is big enough to be served, then go and try that. There is no limit. Like if you do your job, of course, don't be ridiculous that the ludicrous situation we're talking about, let's assume that's not a problem with the technical founder because yeah. they're very connected to the ground. The other problem is even more dangerous, which is not taking that to begin with. And there is no reason not to do it if the target market is big enough. Yeah. Inspirational. Uh, Keith, yeah, what, what I do really, you have to say about it? I am motivated. Um, I can I can tell kids so motivated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the bet is on inefficiency. Are you willing to bet? Are you willing to increase your inefficiency or decrease your efficiency? However, you want to look at it, because that that's the to me that's the ultimate bet. And this this gets put into all sorts. You know, it could be CAC payback, could be whatever you want, right? Yeah. Um, are you willing to invest those things, knowing that you're going to drag that number up when you want it to go down? or down when you want it to go up or whatever it is. Like it, it's, you're making a bet that goes against what logically you would say, well, it's like, well, we're at 18, we're gonna take it to 30, but our goal is 19, but you're making the bet that it works itself out, right? That's the bet, it's always a bet, um, especially at this stage, because the reality is, is that like um, the numbers, as the numbers get bigger, oftentimes the mechanics that got you there don't work. So you're having to, both set bigger goals and try and fill the gap of how you're going to hit those goals with things that are unproven. But I'm, I'm kind of with Dan. I, I just feel like um, I think the balance is you want to be aggressive, but not reckless. Um, then why not go get a job at Google? Like seriously, it pays really well. 
you push a pixel around every now and then <laughs> take a few days off like do you know what i'm saying like there that's yep. not a bet but i think the key is just like trying to find the line between aggressive and reckless and trying to really like uh, kind of lean into being inefficient and that being okay you bring up a good point on that on the inefficiency thing because all of that invests right like your your cash burn suddenly spikes and then you've got to get you know and, and people can be impatient on results and yep. usually things take a little bit longer right uh and so then it's a case of like not getting spoke not getting spooked immediately right if your cash burn suddenly doubles like i think it's a well said keith the other thing is that i think they're you know this town gets really focused on hiring as like a success metric. You know what I mean? Like they hired 300 people last year. And everybody's like, oh my God, they must be killing it, right? It's great. Um, and then they lay off 150 people and everyone says, well, maybe not. Um, <laughs> so I think like you try to make the investments like on the marketing side, you make investments in program spend long before you make investments in tripling the size of your team or whatever. Like you try and start making the bets that you can, uh, maybe that bet's not going so well, I can turn it down a little bit. Whereas if I take the team from 10 to 50, well, now I've got 40 new people and, you know, we're sitting around trying to figure what to do. So I think that um, sales capacity, Dan talked about this, models really can, you know, you can make anything work in a model. So that's the beauty of it. Um, but I think once you start really leaning into headcount, you need to kind of have, you have some indication that this is working. You said a bunch of things I want to go back to. So efficiencies then you said yeah you hired i think 140 people you said yeah 100 yeah 147 holy shit <laughs> that is ridiculous you may you hire so many people there is no ch and you said it keith like there is no chance of not making mistakes i think i don't know i've been in that story with a smaller number much smaller number like 15 people and it's tough necessary but tough to keep the the bar high and make the decisions that are unpopular about the, the mistakes you made. You hired too many people, not all of them were good, and now you have to fire a bunch of people. It hurts the morale, but everyone is asking what took you so long. Uh, what is the level of efficiency, inefficiency that is, that is not ludicrous, but it is opportunistic? So I can give it from like my perspective. Like I definitely am, uh, and, and I hate to say like the voice of reason because that's not the right, the, 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 I'm the sales guy. So at the end of the day, the way I think about my job is like if something goes wrong, nobody blames product. Uh, I'm going to be the first person walked out the door. Uh, and this will take me on a tangent of like why, like why I wanted to run a business versus being the sales guy and blah, 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 blah. So I do know at this point, like I think it's important, you know, if there's any sales leaders listening to this, I do think it's important that you do not expect somebody else to be the voice of reason. You have to be the voice of reason of like, are you comfortable with the numbers? And if you are not comfortable with the numbers, at times you should fire your boss which means you should not sign up because I can tell you what will happen if you miss the number. You will get fired. You will get locked out the door. And I think it's really important for people to understand, like, you've got to be as, as the person responsible for the training, onboarding, hiring, hitting the model, exceeding goals. You got to be comfortable with the numbers. You got to meticulously know the details of, of your team and the performance of that team to feel comfortable to go do this at scale. There's always things, you know, I, I don't necessarily know how to answer if like, what's the reasonable bound of, 
you know, I don't know if there was a metric that I looked at some of the growth rates and said like, oh, that's going to be a, I know when it's a stretch and where I feel comfortable, but I don't know if there was a, a band that, that kind of took me out of things. So kind of like a little bit of like a non-answer and a rant, ramble no, no, there. You, you, you answered. First of all, let's drink. Look at you. Even I have, in the, I have a little bit of uh, you already spilled ice. Some. No, I didn't spill. It's just the ice. Mm. Uh, I'm not there yet. If that text me, please. <laughs> but please do get a drink. You did mention Keith. I think growth efficiencies, right? You mentioned like CAC, LTV, I think some other. What is the level? Like, what is the number that you look at and you say, like, don't, don't, don't freak out, technical CF, CEO. It's going to be okay. And let's, let's give it another year or another nine months. And if we see the trajectory doesn't improve in, in nine months, then let's have this conversation. But we have enough runway. Let's make this bet and wait patiently to see if the market catches up. Like, yep. what does it look like? Yeah, so I mean, I'm gonna give you a non-answer to that question, but then then backdoor into another answer. Um, I mean, I think so much of that depends on the individual business. Like, it depends on your your net retention. It depends on tra- like all of those things. So, if you can be really efficient up front if you're if you're expanding one and a half in the next twelve months. Even better if it's the next six months or whatever it is. So, I think there's so many factors that play into that versus just like any one number. And I think it, this comes down to, you know, your average deal size, um, time to second dollar, like all of these things that would give you more. Uh, let me confidence. pause you there because I think I can, I, let's, let's just throw some theoretical complete out of bound numbers. Yep. Let's just say 60K ACV, 81 days to close your deal. Let's say three months into the, into the annual contract, it doubles in size. Uh, let's just yep. use some of those completely hypothetical numbers let me give you like a i'll here's my i'm gonna take dan's answer and your question and mash them together and see what we get out of this right (laughs) Um, it's gonna be a casserole like i don't think i have like specific science on this but i i think when you look at your invest you you take a model you've got you've just modeled i'm sure for the new year and you're trying to decide on efficiency and this that and the other i think it's like when you look at the model how many assumptions have to come right for you to hit the model? And I think if it's five, you're totally, you're totally screwed. Like if, if you're like, okay, in order to hit the model, we, we're going to hire a hundred people. We're going to get ramped down 30%. We're going to increase deal size by 20%. We're going to reduce churn by 8%. We're going to decrease our, our, you know, our average, um, you know, time to first dollar and we're going to decrease, like you, you start piling up all of those assumptions that need to go right. And I think once you cross about three, it's like you should start getting really, um, really nervous about the investments there, because at some point you put so many assumptions into a model and what you've done is you've just modeled for a business you don't even have. Like it's a, it's like a stark contrast from your actual business. Now that doesn't mean that you're like, we're going to work on reducing ramp or we're going to work on increasing our spend to pipe or we're going to working our win rates. But if every single one, like if your model doesn't have anything that's static from the year before, then I think you're totally toast. I wrote down how many guesses versus actuals in your model. Greater than five, you're fucked. Is that accurate? I'm going to call that the five. I don't, I haven't, let me, I'll, I'll go and I'll workshop it for you. But five, <laughs> five seems where you should start to get a little suspicious. And, and by that, you mean like things that didn't happen in the past that you're expecting to like magically happen in the future. Yes. 
So like yeah. if your ACV is growing steadily and it's your model, that's cool. If your sales cycle is growing because your ACV is growing in a particular trajectory and you can predict it, it's okay. If velocity, it's cool. There is one thing that is new, let's say the ramp up time. You're expecting the next 50 to ramp up faster than the first five. That's okay. That's a risk you're willing to put yep. in the model. Yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, like right, you're in a perfect world, you end the year and you say, oh, just in the simplest, you know, hey, we put a dollar in, we get five out. And so now I'm going to put 10x, 10x the dollars in. Nothing else has to change. We just need to hire sales capacity. We need to do whatever. And like, we're just, we're just growing. The investment is linear. It makes perfect sense. It rarely happens that way. That is the dream, right? But instead you start saying like, okay, well, you know, we've got to deviate somewhat from the business that we just closed, that, that company that just ended the year and we've got to start making some changes, right? And I mean, that's very natural. Like there are things that you're like, that's not good enough, needs to be better, et cetera, et cetera. All I'm saying is just once you get too many of those and you start running your business and suddenly you're just running a different business um, than the one you just ran, and that is where I think things fall apart. This is the, um, Craig at Dialpad used to always talk about the triple, triple, double, you know, which is the classic VC thing. Um, first triple, like in the grand scheme of things seems impossible, probably not that hard. Second triple, you're like, all right, this got, this got pretty challenging. The double, like once you're at like, you're trying to double from 30 to 60 or whatever it is, well, suddenly, you know, you're, you need to do as much revenue in one year that you've done in the history of the company. That's when it gets really challenging. And that's when, if you're not careful, the, you know, you're the subject, a victim of model porn, which is when someone's just hidden a bunch of assumptions that, and you've now got a business that needs to create $30 million and it's not a business you've run previously. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna call this episode, I think, the like hidden gems or hidden truths for a technical founder because I learned I think more in this one than in many others because you represent the complementary person in the in you know next to me driving the business. The conservative founder or the technical founder, I think usually those are the same because it's an engineer in the back end, they know how to fix for those. They know how to make sure that triple, triple, double happens. In fact, they are so, you know, they'll reverse engineer the shit out of the numbers to make sure it happens. Yep. But the other part that not even, you know, like when do you take the moment to actually go all in is, is the Achilles heel. It becomes the Achilles heel of that person. Usually that company gets acquired because of that exact reason, because they have the best technology and superior product, but they raised like 5% of what the other market competitors did. And so I think it's fascinating. There's a lot of lessons learned uh, for the technical, technical founders. I want to ask you about a hundred more questions, but I'll stop here because the hour ended. I want to ask you one each, uh, one uh, advice because you gave so many already very, very important uh, insights for, for technical founders and for technical CEOs. One piece of advice for a founder who finished their Series A, achieved product market fit, and is thinking, how do I move from five to 15? And then to 30 and to 60, um, granted that they think they can, what's the first, who, who, do they, who do they hire or what's the next thing that they should do? One piece of advice that is the most important for that person. You know, I mean, I think I have a lot of advice, but one thing I would say that I, um, that really just stuck out in my head is that you have to invest in formal strategy early. 
it's something that I think that people don't do. Like someone has to own the strategy. Like the strategy has to live somewhere so that people can see it. Like our go-to-market strategy, how we think about the world. Like in it, what happens is, is that, you know, like you don't hire necessarily like a head of strategy at a series A, but the reality is, is that like, you're just, it's just kind of happening and you just sort of grow. And then at some point in the future, you're like, oh, like people say like, what's our strategy? And you're like, well, I mean, it's the thing we're doing, which isn't really an answer, you know? And so I just think that um, the sooner that you can formalize strategy in the business, it actually helps scale. It helps you gut check a lot of decisions that are getting made on whiteboards. And then suddenly they've, they've, they're off into the world versus like, does this really match with how we think about the world, how we think about the market, like really formalize that. Cause what happens is, is that I've just seen it many times where you wake up series C series D things have been really well. And then things taper, like you, you know, you're like, we're, we're, we're killing it. And then it's like, well, so that next dollar was just a tiny bit harder than we were expecting. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot of SaaS companies that died in the graveyard at like 90 million that were racing to 90 and just fell and tumbled over a hundred, right? Like their growth rate just completely went in the tank. And I think a lot of times it's because they just, you know, it was too late. They didn't, they didn't have really a sense of what their strategy was for growing that. They just had a lot of details. Like they were too focused on executing and not focused enough on the plan. Then. Uh, I'll take us on a little ramble too to, to, to close this out. So, so Marky Andreessen sits on our board uh, and it's super interesting to have, uh, to, to have him, uh, to, to, to meet with him. There was a moment in time and he said, look, like um, the truth is in the growth rate of the business. Um, and it was incredibly profound. Uh, and, and as I said, not, the, the, sometimes the advice that you get isn't, you know, it's not rocket science. And I would say like, for this is like understanding like where, where are you distracted and how do you limit the distractions and really focus and lean into where you see acceleration? Um, so that was something that I think is like general advice, which is don't try to do too much and then also pay attention to your growth rates. And you always want to have a, one product or a, fee, or a product line, whatever it might be, that is, demonstrate, that is breaking out and demonstrating accelerating growth. And I think that might mean that you have to make hard decisions to drive focus. Uh, might mean that you're going to back out of an area that's slower growing to go and lean into something uh, that's faster growing. And again, that means that you have to be willing to take that risk and be willing to step into it and bet it all. And uh, to Keith's point, I would reiterate, really having a plan for the future and having somebody spending their time thinking about what the next version of your product is, or if you were to start your business today, would your business and product actually look the way that you have built it? It takes on average, what, 10 years for a startup to get to an exit now. Uh, you pick up 10 years of Frankenstein code and things pieced together. And I can tell you, people constantly just add things on top of it where you would probably, if you were to start your business today, you would probably do it very differently and it would look different. And I think it's important to actually force the leadership team or the executive team to actually talk about those things to say, do we need to continue on this path that we're at? Or do we need to think about potentially kind of shifting gears and doing things slightly differently? And again, it, it just comes back to reiterating Keith's point, which is like, you got to really think about strategies of word and, it, and it, it can just float out there. But I think you actually have to have a meaningful vision of the future and the competitive landscape. Yeah, I view, I view it as it's the skeptic in a room full of believers. I kind of think you need it. 
you need you need you need that one thing that's really asking the hard question the earlier you can sort of really formalize that who is our audience what do they look like what is what what is unique about them how does our product align to that where can we grow can we raise our prices like do we have any idea would they stay with us if we raise prices where's the adjacent market is there an adjacent market how do we grow this thing? Is it through expansion? Is it through adding more SKUs? Or is it just like we have a big enough market of first time buyers? Like, I think the more like those things just kind of happen and then they disappear. They're like in people's heads. And I actually think it just helps you hire people better as well. Like, I can't tell you how many times people will be like, walk me through the plan. And I'm like, and then what happens is you're like, the plan is the goal. You're like, our plan is a hundred million dollars. And they're like, that's a, that's a goal. It's not a plan. Right. And that's what happens is like, I think the earlier you can have a plan because you'll have goals the whole way. Right. You'll you know, we're going to have a here's our goal. Here's our goal. Here's our goal for product. Here's our goal for sales. Here's our goal. But like a goal and a plan are two separate things. And I think like a lot of times you're just hauling ass and you like all you everyone's focused on the goal. No one's focused on the plan. This was extremely insightful for me. I can't I can't stress this enough. So thank you both for being uh, very candid, hilarious, a lot to learn. And I'm really excited to implement. Uh, some of the things I already learned. So big thank you again, and have a wonderful rest of the week. Uh, good weekend. Yep. All good right. to see you. You too. Thank Dan, you, Dan. Good thank to you, see you, buddy. Yeah, you too. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and will tune in again. Find all of the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out.